I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Thank you very much for coming out on an October evening. It's a beautiful bookshop. Um, it's very difficult for me to speak about this book, which I've been asked to do rather than read from it, since that would spoil it for everybody, um, because really everything that I want to say about the theatre is in this book. It, it, that was my purpose in publishing it, and Faber very kindly agreed to publish it, although lectures on theatre are not known as a, a best-selling category compared with um, cookbooks or gardening books. But they were kind enough, and really I did it partly for um, academic interests. Like most um, writers who've been writing for a long time, I'm under constant siege from academics and students. And I once actually, about uh, 15 years ago, I think, uh, met a man who's a professor in Chapel Hill in Northern California, oh, sorry, Northern Carolina, North Carolina, whose job it is to... Um, keep a record of who is having a thesis or a PhD written about them at any one time. And he looked me up and uh, he said, my goodness me, there's a quite extraordinary number of people who are writing their PhD or their thesis about you. And I, I said, why are you so surprised? He said, well, I suppose I'm not surprised because you're just the right degree of obscure. He said. <laughs> Uh, so this book is for all those poor suffering souls who've chosen me as a subject and it's everything that I want to say is there but I hope it's also for the general reader and the general reader as Faber and Faber know extremely well it's a great struggle to get books about the theatre into bookshops um, they automatically fly back to the very darkest place next to the lavatories in bookshops Waterstones, Otakas, all the big chains, Borders if you look for a book about the theatre it's a terrible effort to find it and so I want to make a claim for the theatre in this book and in particular to make a claim about politics and the theatre um, I suppose the whole, it does indeed include essays on and lectures on uh, the railways, on the privatisation of the railways, on Israel and Palestine, and indeed on God, about whom I made a not wholly supportive speech in Westminster Abbey, which is here in the, in the book. And um, I suppose I wanted to make a claim for political writing, and this is a wonderful place to talk about this in the sense that the division in this country between the literary world and the world of the performing arts is very, very marked, uh, much more so than in most countries, I think. You will find in France, if you were Sartre, Simon de Beauvoir, Albert Camus, um, Marguerite Dürer, uh, it was simply a novelist would expect also to work in the theatre. In other words, it was understood that if you were serious about writing at all, you would not work in one or the other, you would work in both. And if you were a novelist, you would see the performing arts as something valuable in themselves and of literary value. Here, there's a traditional snobbery whereby the literary pages don't regard the performing arts as real writing. And I was particularly struck by a remark of the novelist Maggie G, which I read about three weeks ago, where of her new novel, she said, my intention was to write a political novel, uh, but of course I was worried that if I wrote a political novel, 
it wouldn't be taken seriously about as literature. And that is somebody of my generation saying that, of long experience. And it seemed to me to mark two things that were of interest to me. First, the way in which in the theatre we regard politics as a legitimate subject and indeed a central subject for the theatre. Um, and secondly, a, a terrible lack of confidence in the English novel and sort of maybe the reason that the English novel is not universally regarded throughout the world as the very um, apogee of um, international novel writing. Uh, because this sort of immaturity about the w unwillingness to examine the world in a historical or a social context. Again, another remark I remember from a, a novelist, extremely distinguished novelist, called Sebastian Falks. And he was asked, um, no, he said, well, my interest has always been in putting people and particularly women, in the context of the passage of history and whole social movements. And I can't understand why other literary works don't do this, he said. And I nearly wrote him a note and said, other literary works do this, they're called plays, and they're performed in theatres, to which novelists don't go. And the division in this country, whereby... A, the performing arts are looked down on, and then politics itself is thought to be somehow suspect as a literary subject, are the two things that I suppose um, I feel most strongly about in the book. And perhaps I should read from the opening essay, which is called Obedience, Struggle and Revolt. And I'll explain to you why it's called Obedience, Struggle and Revolt, which Andrew Marr um, start the week was kind enough to say was the most off-putting title for a book that he'd ever heard. Um, and I, the reason it's called that is because Balzac in Père Goriot says that there are three choices facing a young person setting out on life. Um, they may choose obedience, which is dull, struggle, which is hard, or revolt, which is impossible. And all those uh, French 19th century novels which I love so much because they represent exactly the opposite of the, of the novel, the contemporary novel in England, um, show those paths which are available to people as they, move, as they move through life. And it was very clear to me in the 1960s, which was when I was brought up, that those were indeed the three choices. I could either, as it were, get a career in something and, um, you know, live my life and be a good person. On the other hand, the temptations of revolution were extremely strong. At that time, it's impossible to think back now to the 1960s when revolutionary thought was so vital and it appeared to be where all young people wanted to place themselves. But very early on, and I suppose the essay describes the struggle in the 1970s, when theatre was of phenomenal importance to those who took part in it, and the disputes that took part in the th that took place in the theatre in the 1970s had, I'm not claiming they had a vitality, which young people who enter the theatre don't now have, but they certainly had a bitterness, which they don't now ha have. I remember a man, after the first play that I directed at the National Theatre, we were on tour in Bristol, and someone who had actually worked on the production... Uh, backstage stood on a table in a restaurant at the, at the first night party after the show and yelled out uh, in language as it's before the nine o'clock watershed I shan't say exactly what he said but he said David Hare is an enemy to the revolution it's now impossible to imagine plays um, causing that degree of you might say hysteria, you might say passion, you might say conviction, uh, but they did in the 1970s. And the battles that we had between those of us who were not Marxists, in other words, those who'd chosen struggle, uh, against those who'd chosen Marxists, who'd chosen revolt, were incredibly profound. And I, they marked me for life, really. And I describe in the essay, which is partly autobiographical, the way in which I've never quite recovered from the bitterness of those arguments. I joined a, what I felt to be a collaborative theatre movement 
Um, I loved the feeling of being on the fringe. I loved the feeling of a whole lot of us in the 1960s having a common diagnosis about the feeling that our country was ridiculous, that um, it, it palpably capitalism could not continue in the way that it was. It was absolutely inevitable that it would break down. Um, the Marxist left believed that it was going to end in revolution. Those of us with less conviction about the urban proletariat and the likelihood of revolution in England felt that it was going to end in some kind of social crisis breakdown. By the end of the 70s, and these years in which these divisions were so painful between these two groups, um, history, in fact, took an unexpected turn to the right. Capitalism kicked up a gear, markets were freed, and capitalism regenerated itself from within in a way which I think nobody in the 1970s, no intellectual in the 1970s, had predicted. It's hard to remember a time in which intellectually the right wing was in complete despair. We haven't seen that for a while. Uh, but that was how things felt in the 70s. And so in this um, essay, I, I write partly about how that um, time marked me. But however much um, disappointment followed on the 1970s for everybody, I suppose I'm also writing about how it's left me as an inevitably political writer. I'll try and define before I read what I mean by a political writer. Um, in the preface, I think I say that a political writer is someone who is likely to have an analysis as well as a view. That's a sort of easy way of putting it. Um, another way of putting it might be that you have to have some sense of history and society flowing through the room. I'll, I'll tell you what a political writer is not, right? This is the easiest way to do it. Samuel Beckett said, the number of tears in the world is constant. He's not a political writer. Uh, in other words, if you believe that there is nothing really you can do about suffering, that in other words, as soon as a human being goes over to relieve somebody's suffering, somebody else's suffering immediately arises. If you, if you believe that there isn't a way that a social system can be organised to help other people, uh, then you're not a political writer. And Samuel Beckett is, if you like, the definition of a non-political writer. He believes there's something called the human condition. He believes that it's universal. He believes it doesn't matter where you live. But the essential facts about your life, you're born alone, you're going to die alone, nothing you can do can relieve what happens while you're alive. If you believe that, then you're an apolitical writer. But in, in my lot, what I call the political writers, I would nevertheless corral in a whole lot of writers who, I mean, the test case, the acid case, the one, the one that everybody argues about is always Chekhov, um, because Chekhov, of course, um, refuses a political philosophy. He says very clearly, I don't believe in anything. He says the only thing I believe in is the human being. The only thing I believe in is the physicality of man. I believe in the flesh. I believe in trees, nature, life as expressed. But if you look at the way he writes, it's much more complicated than that. He actually is trying to represent not a universal condition. He's trying to represent how Russia was towards the end of the 19th century, what it was like to live in those particular towns at that particular time, how a sense of the impending revolution affected those people. He chooses, most notably, the man had tuberculosis. He's got consumption, and he chooses to go and write about prison conditions in Siberia on a journey which could well have killed him, but which, by his own record, far from killing him, invigorated him. He suddenly um, describes himself as feeling much, much better for travelling through the snow and cold to go and write about what he feels he must write about, which is the suffering of people, the needless suffering of people in Siberia. His motives for going, and this is where he's like so many political writers, his motives for going are extremely mixed. You know, yeah, <laughs> he says basically that the, he, he, dis, he disclaims any high-minded motive. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to as I've just put it, relieve the suffering of prisoners in Siberia and to bring this great scandal, he says, I just fancy six months not living in Moscow. You know, he says, I fancy a change in my way of life. 
Well, there are many ways of changing your way of life. Uh, um, a journey in winter to Siberia is not one that most people would immediately put forward. But like most political writers, he has very mixed motives. And anyone who works in the theatre, as I do, who claims to have an interest in politics also has very mixed motives because the contradiction of working in the theatre and being interested in politics is so profound. If you really were interested in politics, you wouldn't be working in the theatre. You probably wouldn't be working in the arts at all. And you might not choose the single, the, the, the art form with the smallest audience. There isn't any defence, there isn't any rational defence for why we don't all work in television. But we don't. And I suppose the essay is partly about, or the essays in the book are partly about the way the demands of aesthetics run into the demands of politics. And that balance or contradiction between those two things is what marks out all the irresoluble problems of trying to take an interest in politics while also writing. And balancing those two things over a lifetime is fantastically difficult. Why do I write for the theatre? an indefensible thing to do, it appears, rather than for television, the answer is because aesthetically I feel I'm better at it. And the person who writes my plays, who is not me, but who is a person within me, who you might call my creative self, unfortunately makes me write for the theatre. My rational mind would rather write for television. Unfortunately, I can't do it as well as my writing for the theatre. And unfortunately, this creative self, who is trapped inside me, um, makes me write for a form that I wouldn't necessarily choose to write to, but which I seem destined to write to. This is the crucial problem of writing political art, that you cannot do it by will. Those of us who write about public subjects, myself, the privatisation of the railways, the process leading up to the war in Iraq, are commonly asked by producers to write plays on all sorts of subjects. We are summoned into producers' offices because we are believed, wrongly, to be less in hock to our muses than people who write on purely private subjects. Everyone comes to us and says, can you knock me up a play on Guantanamo, please? Can you knock me up a play on... I mean, I get asked regularly for all sorts of... Uh, oh, you did one about the Chinese Revolution. Can you do the Russian Revolution now? as though we were short-order chefs, that we were people who simply can turn our hand to any kind of fusion cuisine that the producer fancies. We can cook up any kind of dish. We can work in any genre. Because it is assumed that those of us whose motives are political are craftspeople. Whereas the people who write about how their mother died of cancer, they are artists. That's art, and what we do is craft. And I suppose in this bit that I'm going to read, I address this claim that it is somehow less costly to yourself and less harrowing to write about public subjects than it is about private subjects. Um, it's very hard to explain to these same producers that you are no different from any other artist. You can't choose your subject, your subject chooses you. And the question uh, of why do you choose to write about one subject and not another is no different for a political artist uh, than it is for Francis Bacon, who could not explain to you why he chooses to portray popes, but he doesn't fancy doing nuns. There is, there is no rational explanation that Bacon can offer on that subject. There is no rational explanation I can offer, except the sense that like all artists, I'm dependent on metaphor. And so, if I can't find a metaphor in a subject, I can't write about it. Now the easiest, I, I, I'm, I say this, this is all after the event. I don't know what I'm doing while I write, any more than any writer knows what they're doing when they write. Again, a political artist is no different from any other artist. I'm writing a play at the moment. I have absolutely no idea why one piece of dialogue pleases me and another doesn't. I know I sit. I want to scrub something out. I want to put something else in its place. When I put that other thing in its place, I'm absolutely delighted. I go, that seems right. If you say to me, what is the reason that seems right? It is completely obscure to me. 
When I finish the play, I may have some idea why it seemed right. While I'm doing it, I'm groping around in the dark like everybody else. However, if you are brought a subject, and as I say, as a political writer, you're brought subjects all the time, I was brought the subject of the privatisation of the railways. Uh, Max Stafford Clark, who has a distinguished record of um, documentary drama, brought it to me and said, will you write a play about the privatisation of the railways? I said, well, it's not you know, immediately the most grabby subject I've ever, you know. And he said, no, but you will have the consolation that when you've finished, it'll be the best play ever written about the privatisation of the railways, which I think it remains, um, in spite of intense competition. Um, we did a workshop for, I think, uh, two weeks, and on day five, I was saying, this subject is completely impossible. I cannot write about the privatisation of the railways. Um, and then... On the fifth or sixth day, a mother came whose son had been killed in the Labrook Grove crash and who, ever afterwards, has been leading the campaign to get some kind of justice for those families who lost people in the Labrook Grove crash. Um, and she began to talk about her grief. And at that point, I began to understand, oh, I see there's a play here. Uh, because really the play isn't about the um, privatisation of the railways. It's about what, in a way, I think all political plays are about, which is how much suffering is avoidable and how much is unavoidable. Um, in other words, this woman believed that it was the privatisation of the railways that had killed her son. So in other words, she was making this claim, which is this did not need to happen. And I suppose that's the most profound question any human being can ask about suffering, which is, what is avoidable, what is unavoidable? And so some of it is built into the social system, some of it is built into what our friends call the human condition. And so how do you draw a line between where you have to suffer and where you don't? And anybody who's known people in grief over, as it were, we could call them accidents, we could call them incidents, we could call them disasters, whatever word we give to them. Anyone who has known that will recognise a certain obsession with that question, which is, of course, the same question that a, that a political playwright is thinking about all the time. When I went to America and I heard these heroic families who made the American government have the commission into 9-11... I heard them talk in exactly the same language that I'd written in the play. They actually, almost phrase by phrase, used the same phrases that I'd heard the families of those who'd lost um, relatives in Labrador uh, Grove crash. The language becomes familiar to you. You hear it again in Katrina. You know, in Hurricane Katrina, I've heard exactly the same thing. Did these people need to die? Uh, was it necessary? Was it not necessary? And that uh, question about what, um, what we can and can't deal with in, in suffering is, is, of course, the natural subject. Once you have that, then a metaphor's arrived. And once the metaphor's arrived, then you're no longer writing journalism. And yet, in the critical reaction, the way it's written about and the way it's seen by the literary world, Writing about real-life subjects is somehow, in this way, thought to be journalism. Extremely appreciative reviews of both Stuff Happens and The Permanent Way began with a critic saying, um, well, I've always thought there's a bit of a, journal a journalist in David Hare. And sure enough, this is wonderful journalism. It, it makes you scream. Uh, in the case of Stuff Happens, I've made up two-thirds of it, you know, I wasn't permitted to attend meetings between George Bush and Donald Rumsfeld and Condoleezza Rice. They are entirely from my imagination. Uh, those three particular protagonists that I've just named, I've never met any of them. Um, I have no clue what they're like in private. I have invented them. They're fictional characters. And they are fictional characters whose density and presence on the stage is intended, I don't say it succeeds, uh, but it is intended uh, to have exactly the same... Uh, density as, um, well, I was going to say Godot, but he never arrives, but Vladimir and Estragon, 
In other words, as people who have been conjured entirely out of the imagination. The game is exactly the same. The, 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 the rules of the game are identical. The fact that you happen to use uh, what I call... Um, the, the example I use is if you, if you paint driftwood that you found on the beach, everybody understands it's sculpture. You don't actually have to have made the wood. You know, you carve the wood. You don't have to have made the wood. And in sculpture, nobody has a problem with this. Somehow, in literature, people have a problem with it. I don't know why. Um, and so it isn't journalism, in my view, when you write about these subjects. And I suppose that's, that's, that's the subject of what this little section of this lecture, Obedience, Struggle and Revolt, um, is. I write first about a terrible play that I wrote in Four Days Flat. And um, it was an absolutely ghastly play. It was the first play I wrote. And I wrote it in four days. Um, and it deserved to fail, and it failed horrendously. And I suppose in the failure of that play, in watching an audience receive my arrogance for daring to write a play in four days without thinking, um, I learned an incredible amount. And um, it was very, very good for me. It's difficult to explain to anyone who has not experienced it the helplessness which attends the creation of any half-serious piece of writing. You wait, hoping the work may one day be uncovered, as it were, buried, pre-existent, and your task is simply to burrow it out from under the soil. My second life, my life as a writer, started back then in 1969, at the moment when I realised that I had just been introduced to a new companion, at whose mercy I was going to spend the next 35 years. My creative self, the person inside me who would slowly go on to write 22 plays, was me, and yet subtly not me. And because of my companion's separate identity, an urgent dilemma would soon emerge. My desire was to use the theatre to argue for political change and at the other start, to no other end. But early on, it became obvious that, de that the demands of what you would wish to accomplish politically cannot be so easily reconciled with what is artistically possible. Lest this tension sounds too abstract, let me explain it in the simplest way. Imagine, if you will, the artistic programme which any vigorous and committed political writer would undertake if he or she were so empowered. He would make sure, for a start, only to address himself to the most important issues of the day. He would not waste his time writing about anything other than the gulf between the rich and the poor, or the ravaging of the planet by commerce, because, of course, he would regard the examination of apparently lesser subjects as an obvious irrelevance. The medium this paragon would choose would certainly be television, because only by beaming his work into as many homes as possible could he be as effective as possible. And the preferred form of his storytelling would be strong, vigorous narrative. That favourite narcotic of the literary crowd, nuance, would be allowed to go hang, because again, the drama would be fashioned, above all, to be accessible. No member of the enormous audience would be able to mistake the author's purpose and meaning. The fact that this unlikely dramatist I describe, adopting the strategy I describe, does not actually exist anywhere in the world, tells us something about art, and political art in particular. And yet it is a message which critics, directors, and most especially progressive activists seem reluctant to receive. If you are known to be of a political turn of mind, then you will see in a producer's manner a distinct relief because he believes wrongly that for once he is not having to deal with one of those impossible bastards who are stubbornly dependent on their personal muse. Dramatising history and the movement of society is mistakenly thought to be an activity more akin to journalism than to art. All the time, usually from the best possible motives, projects are suggested. You are expected to be able to turn your hand to anything. What's more, it is implied that plays which directly correspond to events in the outside world will be produced at a cost of less self-examination, even less effort. No, however many times you say it, nobody seems to grasp it. A snobbery is in play here. The snobbery of a book-bound culture, especially in England, whereby man works about man's hopeless position in the universe are assumed to be wrenched from inside the dramatist's furthest being, whereas works which address themselves to social injustice 
are taken to operate on some lower level of suffering and skill, which may allow them to be knocked up like my miserable first one-act play in a few days flat. It is important, no, it is my whole purpose here to formulate what I, at some expense, have realised to be the most important lesson, that the creation of a great political play will demand exactly the same measure of genius, torture and art as the creation of any other, and maybe more. Yes, it is plain, when we attend a performance of Long Day's Journey and Tonight, that one of the most gifted and anguished writers of the 20th century is offering us a matchless portrait of his own family, which cuts right down deep into the bone of human deceit. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. But when we see Brecht's The Life of Galileo, or his mother courage and her children, what do we then think? Are we stupid enough to imagine that the creation of two of the 20th century's most disturbing masterpieces on the subject of betrayal and selling out were not created at equal personal expense by someone who, let's put it politely, knew a little bit about betrayal and more than a little bit about selling out. What school of Hallow Magazine-style criticism is it which insists that a play about your own family must be hard, but that a play about the intellectual disgrace of the Renaissance must be easy? Are Zola, Gorky, Hardy and Charles Dickens asking less of themselves in their socially aware writing than armchair stylists like Henry James and Vladimir Nabokov? Are they less refined? What crazy, stuck-up nonsense is this? It was from this basic misunderstanding about the nature of political writing, the idea that it is different in its essential processes from any other kind of creative writing, that so many of the disputes of the 1970s flowed, and so much of the bitterness followed. At a time when Britain was in an alarming state of transition, angry positions were adopted. Playwrights were regarded as stubborn and unhelpful when they failed to produce the required work which would endorse those positions. Those who have chosen revolt traditionally have little patience with those of us who favour struggle. Many dramatists found themselves suddenly under attack from a utilitarian left which believed that everything, including art, could only be judged by how useful it was. It was good or bad according to whether it could crudely be marshalled to a cause. And at the same time, some of us came under equally lively fire from the right, this time, well, for no other reason but that we existed. The right disliked me. No, that's too weak a word. The right loathed me because they claimed I was doing the very thing of which the left was meanwhile claiming I wasn't doing enough. Turning the theatre from a place of harmless, corroborative entertainment into a boring dissenter's pulpit. Inevitably, one side wanted me to preach more, the other less. Oh, they were high old times, not just for me, but for all of us. In recalling them, it's hard not to feel a measure of roomy-eyed nostalgia, the same old man's melancholy that overwhelmed me at a projection of Sylvia. Some impassioned feminists joined in, dismayed that at a moment when it was important to hear from a new patch of talented women playwrights, a conspicuous line of roles for women was, inconveniently, being written by a man and performed with relish by a series of great feminist actors. Shostakovich pointed out that the desire to avoid, at any cost, everything controversial 
can transform young composers into young old men. Whatever else, that was never my problem. I was ageing from living controversy, not from avoiding it. My wounds stayed shockingly raw throughout the 1970s because I made myself vulnerable. I wanted to reconcile some kind of group impulse with the task of writing individual plays. Perhaps, who knows, because of my fatherless upbringing, I loved the solidarity of a committed theatre movement. A sense of common purpose warmed me, and I loved being close to the life of an individual playhouse. I loved its feeling of family. I worked proudly as director with some of the most original playwrights of the day. Nothing pleased me more than the sympathy of being part of a struggle for something more important and larger than my own work. So it was only at the end of that difficult decade, yes, when I went to Australia, clearly exhausted and I fear diminished, that I accepted what more intelligent writers know from the start. I remember thinking, oh, I see, I'm alone. Edward Bond said, the central dishonesty in Beckett is that he gets up every morning and bothers to write. And there is no trace of that in his work. Now, I don't myself think that's entirely fair. I, I'm not um, um, in any... I mean, <laughs> it's such a complicated subject. I am not saying that um, he isn't, for those who like him, a particular, particularly great writer. I'm not saying that, because he plainly is, in a particular genre. But there is a difference of attitude between those who locate their work in some timeless never-never land and those who root it. I'm going to go on to say some more things you'll hate, right? Um, but first of all, yes, I know, and people have claimed that that's a play about the French Resistance. And people have claimed that the crossroads is the crossroads on which he stood in 1944... But if it's going by, as they say, if all that stuff is going by at the level of you have to read the footnotes in order to understand the play, no, he didn't want that stuff in the play. It's his choice. He wrote the play he wanted to write, and he deliberately didn't set it in the crossroads in southern France in 1944. He probably could have written a great play about the resistance. He didn't choose to, right? I'm not saying that one is right or one is wrong. What, what I'm saying is that those who... There's a fantastic... I, w I would take that quote. I would, I would have to take that quote as, as a, almost a definition of what a non-political writer is. In other words, he's saying, you know, however much you may work in one place to relieve suffering, suffering inevitably happens somewhere else. It, I think that's the implication of the remark. I, I, I find it hard. To... What? It's possible it is true. Yeah, it's possible our, my life, the life of those of us on this side of the argument, is entirely delusive. That's many times... Yeah, exactly. I, well, what is he saying? It's very hard to know from his work what is he saying. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, I, I, I don't not admire him. I think he's an extraordinary figure. But to really drive you insane with anger, if I may, I think that... The, it is usually at the Royal Court in 1957. People wouldn't do Harold Pinter, and you know you, the obvious question, which any historian of the British theatre is going to ask: Hang on, George Devine is running a new writers' theatre. He discovers John Osborne. A year later, Harold Pinter writes the Birthday Party. Right now, why would the Royal Court not do Harold? I think they did the Dumb Waiter and. Um, the room. I think they did a double bill of small plays, but his major work they never presented. Why did the Royal Court not present it? Because the fashionable point of view was to say that Pinter, they believed him just to be a disciple of Beckett. Well, there are two reasons they didn't do him. One was that the critic of the Sunday Times, Harold Hobson, wrote, Pinter is the most important dramatist, he must be done at the Royal Court immediately. And the story is that George Devine, who was then director of the Royal Court, came in on Monday morning, threw down the paper and said, if there's one writer we're never going to do here, it's, it's Harold Pinter. Right? So that was one reason. But the other reason was that Beckett was thought to be a great master and Harold was thought to be just a, a copyist. You know, it, He was thought to have got all his ideas from Beckett. I believe this is a terrible, terrible um, libel on Harold. And not only that, this is what will enrage you, I think, he's the, I think Pinter's the greater writer. And the reason I think Pinter's the greater writer is because he roots 
Beckett's discoveries in a social reality, and he roots them in the East End of his childhood and those working class, um, his working class childhood in the East End. And suddenly he produces these three masterpieces, as I think, you know, The Birthday Party, The Caretaker and The Homecoming, all of which, yes, they do, as it were, you know, Harold himself will say Beckett is the person he learned from. But on the other hand, I think it's a rare example of a disciple being greater than a master. But uh, it's just my view, view of it. And of course, now Harold would interpret his own work politically, uh, which the plays are open to, even if he didn't think they were at the time. Beckett's plays are much less open to it, to that interpretation. You know, when I do it, it comes out weak and thin. Uh, it's an, an artistic problem. You know, we can all moan about the state of television. Is it so much that you're writing? Oh, yes. No, I, yes, but I feel bad about not writing for television because a lot of us, you know, in the 1970s I wrote for television and it was a missionary thing. You know, people who wrote for television felt so excited about it and obviously there was this incredible tradition of work. Um, you know, I was working at BBC Birmingham in the 1970s and in the canteen, sitting in the canteen, you'd see uh, Mike Lee, Ken Loach, Stephen Frears, Willie Russell, Alan Bleasdale... We were all just working, and it was just regarded as the common thing that if you wanted to work in the performing arts at all, the best place to work was television. And in particular, the best place to work was Birmingham, because basically you were left alone, and the censorship problems that happened in London didn't happen because they were so snobbish about what was going on in Birmingham. They didn't, it was too far away for them to bother, so they didn't, <laughs> they didn't cut the plays in the way they cut them in London or interfere with the plays in the way they interfered in London. And so this, you had this hotbed of creativity there. And then in the 80s, you get this diaspora where people leave television for um, either the cinema or they leave because uh, they say, you know, the single play was killed and, you know, the, the working conditions are no longer what artists want. I don't have that alibi. I simply don't write as well for television as I write for the theatre. But what I like in the theatre is that by chance, it can hit its time, and by accident, it can have a fantastic effect. And the weird thing is that The Permanent Way, which was playing, you know, it was playing on tour. It was playing in the regions to audiences of three or four hundred. It was playing to, it was playing in the Sheffield Working Men's Club. You know, it was playing at the church at Hatfield. And yet it caused a huge wave of feeling on behalf of the families, a lot of publicity, it rattled the government. Um, Stephen Daldry was recalling that John Prescott um, became extremely abusive towards me in person. It, it, it did rattle their cage. The government was much more upset about it than they were two weeks ago when on BBC One at nine o'clock a drama documentary about Labrador Grove went out which Two and a half pe million people are said to have watched, but it had absolutely no impact at all. And so it is odd, and it's like poetry. It's some funny little um, sideways form that is con the theatre that is constantly denigrated, you know, and we all, for 20 years, have lived through these articles by trendy journalists saying, you know, oh, I can't be bothered to go to the theatre, it's too much effort, you know. Those articles that appear in papers all the time. And yet, for some reason, it goes on just occasionally catching the public imagination in a, in a big way. And yes, that is very exciting. Because the quality of the experience is what I'm after. Apart from the fact that I happen to be better at writing for the theatre than I am for other forms. An artist doesn't have much choice about what they are good at or what they do. The story that I always love to tell, um, because it, I suppose, gives me an alibi, um, is Giacometti. There's a wonderful interview with Giacometti where he's asked, um, well, Mr. Giacometti, there's one thing I've always wanted to ask you. Why are your figures so thin? Um, and he says, he just says, well, it's funny you should ask me that. He said, every time I start a new sculpture, I'm absolutely determined to make it fat. Um, but somehow it comes out thin. Now... To me, that's the most profound remark. It just... You don't ultimately have any control. And it's, to explain this to people is terribly difficult because um, if you don't do it... If you don't happen to do it, you think, but Will must come into it. And Will does play a part in it. 
But imagination is not wrestled to the ground by will. And I've tried to write... Um, Either, you know, I felt so terrible in the late 90s about not writing for television that I did commit to writing a series and I wrote um, a couple of episodes of it and I just looked at it and thought this is artistically so far beneath what I would wish it to be that I, I just don't want it to, to happen. Not good enough. And you might ask, I mean, you know, uh, you know for goodness sake, Alan Bennett was once a master of writing for television. Why does he no longer write for television? I'm sure he give you, you know, the public is crying out for more plays on television by Alan Bennett. Nothing would make them happier. Uh, but why does he now not write for television? Why does he write books in the theatre? My guess would be that his answer would be the same as mine, because he has no choice. Oh, nothing wrong with journalism. I love reporting. Uh, and I don't mean, I'm not condescending to journalism in the slightest. I'm just saying art and journalism do different things. And great reporting, I adore. Uh, I'm not so crazy about opinion journalism in which, you know, this country now seems to be drowning. In other words, the proportion of... Uh, I understand the Evening Standard has decided the solution to its very profound problems is to push all the news onto the first three pages and then have 15 pages of people writing about what they think about the news. Uh, that tendency in British journalism is catastrophic, plainly, because the great reporting has gone. Uh, the interesting thing, you know, having been in America, the foreign pages actually in American papers are so much more uh, wide-ranging. The great piece of reporting can be about itself and only itself and only describe the situation to you, whereas I would have thought um, the very act of so many people gathering together to watch something is rarely just about the events themselves. It's usually about whatever the metaphor of the evening is. That, 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 that's m my feeling about why it's worth all giving up two hours collectively or three hours or whatever it is collectively to pay £30 or whatever it is, £25, to all go together and see something together because you hope something um, more than just the events themselves is going to be presented to you. That doesn't mean presenting the events themselves isn't a wonderful thing to do. And I love those tribunal plays that the Tricycle does. I think they're fantastic. Uh, but I, I mean that I would hope for something, I'm not saying more, but else. That's what I'm saying. Um, there's a famous story about Terence Rattigan and Graham Greene and why he wrote for the... Graham Greene did write for the theatre, but really badly. I mean, and T.S. Eliot's plays are... For, uh, Forgive me, but they're not very good. Iris Murdoch's plays are terrible. And so novelists turning to the theatre, by and large, is not a huge success in this country. But there's a famous story where, um, uh, where Graham Greene went to lunch with Terence Rattigan, and Terence Rattigan was going, you know, like, like this at the typewriter, and then he ripped one out of them and held it up, you know. And uh, he said, oh, another page finished, you know. And um, Green said, um, just how many of those do you have to write in order to finish a play, you know? And uh, Terence Rattigan said, well, you've got to do about 90 of those. Um, when you've done 90, you've written a play. And Graham Green said, mm, I think I might write a play. <laughs> uh, and that's how Graham Green began writing plays. But it's under the illusion that it's easy. But of course, it's as silly as saying, um, um, there's, a, there's a loathsome... Um, uh, comment by Martin Amis, where he said playwriting is easy because everybody knows that the dialogue is the easy bit in <laughs> novels, right? He said the boring bit is when you have to go, the mountains looked majestic in the distance. You know, that stuff is very hard to write. But the stuff where you say, I love you, Amanda, no, I love you much more, is, is, the, easy, is the easy stuff. And so he said plays must be easy because they're just dialogue. It's that attitude that is at the bottom of the profound gulf of misunderstanding between the performing arts and literature in this country. Well, that's why I love the Balzac quote, because he's saying, what he's saying is revolt is impossible. And I suppose, you know, everybody thinks that those of us who were around in the 60s, you know, were all um, um, inflamed by the idea of revolution. But it's very hard to remember 
that the left was so divided in the 60s about whether about the idea of an optimistic revolution. A, it seemed incredibly unlikely that you know the urban working class in England was going to rise up. It just didn't seem to me, you know, the, the Marxist scenario seemed to me fantastically unlikely. And what would follow on that seemed to me unlikely to be paradise. In other words, it seemed to me far more likely to be chaos. And so those who felt that way were deeply divided from those who still believed in a Marxist dream. And the Marxist dreamers, which is a great sadness for me, were then the devastating event in their life was the fall of the Berlin Wall, after which, I'm afraid to say, most of them fall silent because they can't go on writing. Whereas for me, for those of us who hoped that social democracy could deliver something better, the difficult moments have been 1979 when history turned to the right and certainly you know, seriously damaged my writing for a long time until I dealt with that. And then, as I would think, the failure of a social democratic government now, which is something that um, all writers everywhere are trying to come to terms with. I mean, uh, you know, if you'd said to me, I wasn't uh, deluded about a Labour government coming in eight years ago, but nevertheless, I'd have had much higher hopes of it than um, what has happened. I think every writer's trying to come. Every writer's trying to come to terms with what on earth has happened, aren't they? And I think it takes time. In other words, when Thatcher happened, those of us who write about what goes on, we're always a, on a time lag. And people now say, "Oh, there was all this wonderful work about um, Thatcherism," you know, which is usually uh, Carol Churchill and Hanif Karishi and people like this. But if you think about it, it actually takes them five or six years to come to terms with it. It all happens in the late 80s, Boys from the Black Stuff. It takes time because you, it takes time to absorb the way in which things are changing. And the great, in my view, the great work about Blairism hasn't yet been written because it takes time to absorb it because it's so complex. It, it's not, it's not going to pop up for myself. I don't think it's going to pop up in the form of satire. It's very unlikely to pop up in the form of contemporary satire. It's, it's going to take time just, just to write about Thatcherism took time. Yeah, how did I get involved in the Middle East and um, how much am I trying to change the world? The, I must say, London Review of Bookshop, you don't get the easy ones, do you? Um, well, the Middle East just, uh, I suppose what happened was that I was sent to the Middle East by the International Department of the Royal Court Theatre, which was, is Elise Dodgson, who runs this wonderful uh, department at the Royal Court, which looks outwards to the world, really. And she sent me, she wanted me to write about Israel, and I said I won't write about Israel, I'll only write about Israel and Palestine, in other words, if I give them equal airtime. And so when I went, I was so um, completely astonished to discover that it wasn't at all as I expected it to be. And so I suppose, um, again, it returns to the art journalism question, uh, that no journalism had ever described to me what I saw. And I remember meeting David Grossman, who's an extremely distinguished novelist, beforehand, um, and he said to me, you're completely wasting your time. No trip to the Middle East that is made by an Englishman who knows nothing about the situation can be of any value. He said, uh, you know, it was a fair enough point. He said those of us within the conflict have, have written about it, Amos Oz, you know, Grossman, obviously, uh, Palestinian writers have written about it and they've written about it from within how on earth, what arrogance that you think as a tourist you can arrive and you know, write about it um, he did, he was kind enough later to apologise and he did, when he'd seen the play, did say um, I, I did get that one wrong, I'm terribly sorry which was very, very nice of him um, but it um, when I went there, it was so unlike what journalism had presented to me and I felt People think they know the problem because they've read articles about it. But actually, when you go, it's so completely different. And so when I went, I tried to describe what it was like to go. And I realized, to my horror, the only way I could do it was by personally describing it rather than dramatizing it. In other words, if I made it into a play, an element of falsity would instantly arrive. You would get, you know, um, actors, however good, from London, who would be in their ethnic mix nothing like the people that I've met when I was out in uh, the Palestinian territory and in Israel, and falsity would arrive. And so I realized that the only way to write about it was for me to 
describe what my own feelings on on uh, being there were and how surprising it was to me in so many ways. Um, it's remained with me, obviously. And uh, most subjects, there's a wonderful quote by Orson Welles when he was asked um, whether he likes to visit locations where he's filmed. You know, what he feels like going back to places where he's filmed. And he said, um, the buildings stand like blackened teeth from which I have sucked all the goodness, he said. And that's what an artist usually feels about a subject. Um, people say to me, you know, you're very interested in the Chinese Revolution. And I say, no, I'm, now I've written about it, I'm completely uninterested in it. I've written about it, and I'm... But Israel-Palestine, I have to say, is a subject you can never put away. And you just... Uh, it goes on fascinating you, and it goes on... Um, you, it, I never stop in the back of my mind thinking about, um, is there any other way to write about this? Um, because it... Um, it's such a profound, the questions that it raises are so profound and so unexpected, I suppose. No, because I'm, I basically I would see it the way I saw the rail crashes. In other words, I begin to hear the, the, the relatives of the people who died saying the same things. I, I, I hear exactly the same things that are already in the permanent way, which is they are already beginning to ask why these things happened, why they've been treated so badly, why were they not immediately compensated, uh, you know, it's when Concorde crashed, everybody on that plane, every family got a million dollars instantly. They were given a million dollars within two weeks of Concorde crashing. You know, the London, the victims of the London bombing will wait a very long time for much smaller amounts of money. You know? And it's not to do with money, it's to do with saying sorry. Uh, I, I, if you're saying to me, would I like to write about what young Muslims who want to kill themselves, yes, and I, I don't know if you saw the play Talking to Terrorists, uh, but Max Stafford Clark did a play about, um, and it was about all sorts of terrorists and why, who kills and why they kill, yeah? And I would have to say, and it was a very, very good play, so I'm not for a moment criticising it, but I would say that moment at which somebody decides that it's worth killing yourself for a cause remained as obscure as it would be to you or me in this room now. You know, it, 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 it was not what the play was able to address. If, that, if there was a play that was able to address that, I'd love to see it. I think, the, I think that the, you know, what in, the, in the essay on Osborne, then what I say is that the genius of the English theatre is that it has, from Shakespeare onwards, been people who were not educated at the university, and that it drove a middle path through uh, what you might call the isolation of academia on one side and the stupidity of popular entertainment on the right, um, on the other side, right? So in other words, the great thing about the theatre, the reason I love it, the reason I go to it, is because I neither get the moronic uh, mass media entertainment that I get you know, from, from, from more popular media. On the other hand, I don't get the highfalutin isolationism of academics. And the, in the middle ground is exactly, you know, where, where the theatre has always belonged. And John Osborne, Harold Pinter, you know, there's a whole line of British playwrights who were not educated at the university. And because of that, their education has been the theatre itself. And so because of that, there's a strength to their work, uh, just as there is to Shakespeare's. The snobs, unbelievable snobs, who say that Shakespeare cannot be Shakespeare, and the reason that he can't be Shakespeare is because he can't know that much, because he never went to university. So how come there are all these classical references? Um, and it's an unbelievable line of argument, because actually most actors I know have learnt an incredible amount, and they've mostly learnt it through doing the plays that they do, which they then research and then they learn about subjects which they know much more profoundly than people who've studied them because they have to answer papers about them. Uh, the feminist question, as to my, you know, the, it, was an it was an unlucky thing about my own work that I <laughs> happened to be writing a lot about women at a very inconvenient moment. In other words, at a moment at which it was inconvenient that it was a man that was um, writing all these parts that women wanted to play. And that I, if you say to me, is it ridiculous that they're so underrepresented, in the British theatre, of course it is. But it's part of a larger problem, which I don't have time to address now, which is essentially a problem of directocracy. In other words, it's a, it's a, 
phenomenon of post-war theatre that since Peter Hall invented the idea of um, the large subsidised company, it's been necessary for them to be run, not as they traditionally have been by the people who appear on the stage and the people who write the plays, they've been run by this new class called directors. Um, but basically, it's have the time to do it. The rest of us are too busy. And so, you know, because of that, that's created a certain kind of taste that is common to a whole lot of theatre. And if you say that taste has a particular flavour, it's plainly true. And for myself, whenever a woman gets to run a theatre or whenever uh, an actor gets to run a theatre or, you know, Alan Akebourne is the only playwright in England. This is astonishing. Alan Akebourne is the only playwright who runs a medium-sized theatre in England. No other playwright is allowed to run a theatre. And similarly, if you see a woman, an actor, a playwright running theatres, it's great because it's just a blow for diversity, isn't it? Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.